After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to my. I'm saying welcome to mind rolling, and my partner is la- is no, yawning. No, I was yawning. The other one's laughing. Great boredom. Jeez. Welcome to mind rolling, our weekly podcast with uh, Mr. David Silver. Well, huh? oh, that's his name, David. Yeah, yes, yeah. and Ragu Marcus. And today we have with us uh, Philip Goldberg, who is the author of a wonderful book called American Veda. And, uh, you know, we, we got in touch with Philip. Uh, we actually um, got in touch because originally in my other uh, life with the Love, Serve, Remember Foundation and Ramdas, we wanted to have this book up in, that, uh, in our online store because I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an important book that traces the, the, um, the Vedic tradition, particularly, and how it made its way over to our shores, and uh, the impact that it's had. And uh, we, certainly David and I, were very much part of that impact as we uh, navigated the 60s and the early 70s, and, um, and, and, and this culture certainly was presented to us and had a huge impact on our lives, and uh, and and we talk about it on uh, Philip on uh, on this podcast. We talk about how important that time was and how relevant it is. Some of the same stress, very similar stresses, stressors happened in the '60s and early '70s uh, to what has been happening here now. And uh, and I think there's a lot of great uh, information from back then that uh, that just could be helpful on a day-to-day basis. And your book traces this. And uh, so we uh, thank you for being here. I'm delighted to be with you. First thing I want to say, um, Philip, is that this book is so rigorous that I not only does it tell someone who knows about that time, but someone who doesn't know about that time, and I did a few tests. <laughs> I did a few tests just to see if you, how detailed this research was and how, you, how deep your intuition is. And you, you pass them on. Particularly, one of them I tried was this guy, Jerry Jarvis, who I spent a lot of time with. And I thought, I wonder if... Jerry, I still see Jerry. Oh, well. Well, uh, later we can talk about him, but obviously you passed that test. But, you know, more seriously, um, the continuum that you create 
particularly from the transcendentalists, Emerson, Thoreau, Whitman, through to now, um, so much of it is is sort of lost in the fog somehow, and people think all of this just sprang up with, you know, um, Jim Morrison and uh, John Lennon. And, of course, it didn't. And you very brilliantly, I might say, without being too obsequious, you just trace it like one flow. And I'd like to ask you, you know, to be, to begin with, um, to just talk to the, our audience about the transcendentalists, Emerson, Thoreau, and Whitman, and what they mean yeah. to this tradition of Vedantic wisdom coming to the United States. Yeah, well, it it, it really starts with them. Um, Emerson, has, whose impact on American culture is unprecedented and and uh, unsurpassed. Uh, philosophers will tell you that. Literary people will tell you that. Um, but very few people really appreciate the uh, amount of influence that his reading of uh, what we think of as Hindu and Buddhist sacred literature and the commentaries about them uh, starting very early in his life uh, had on on the development of, of what we think of as Emersonian thinking and philosophy. He's been called America's Plato. I call him America's Shankaracharya because he was really uh, the first non-dual thinker to achieve prominence and probably our first prominent person who could be called spiritual but not religious because he, he gave up his uh, his uh, clerical collar at one point. But he, uh, his father, actually, when he was a, when Emerson was a little boy, his, his father was among the few people in uh, America who was becoming enthusiastic about Asian philosophy and Asian religious thinking. And so the, he grew up with those books in his house and uh, wrote about it, even as a Harvard student. And you could just see the development of his thinking uh, paralleling what he was reading. So he, he it had a huge impact on him, and he passed it along to Thoreau. When Thoreau was at Walden, he had a borrowed copy of the Bhagavad Gita that he, he had from Emerson's library and wrote about it in Walden, praised the book, and um, called himself a yogi. And a lot of the people, uh, when I uh, interviewed American Veda, which you were kind enough to, to call rigorous, one of the reasons for that is I interviewed more than 300 people. Mm. And a lot of them, especially people of our generation, said that they first got turned on to uh, uh, Vedantic thinking uh, and Indian philosophy when they read Walden and they said, well, if he read this thing called the Bhagavad Gita, I'm going to go find me a copy. And so that influence has been going on for a long, long time. And, and all kinds of people read Emerson and Thoreau and Whitman's poetry, uh, and they may or may not know that there's anything Indian going on because, you know, the language changes and so forth. Mm. But they were her heroic figures. Well, okay, let's, let's say that that's where you kind of drew the line in, in the American experience in terms of what started it. 
one of the things that you yeah. say in one form or another, which I find really fascinating, is that, you know, coming from the independence from Britain and India coming from the independence from Britain, uh, I'm English, uh, but I'm not going to defend them here. That independent spirit, <laughs> <laughs> that independent spirit, is part and parcel of, of looking, reaching out to an Emerson's wisdom and much later to other, so many of the others you talk about right through to Alan Watson, Ginsburg, and, and so on. But would you flesh that out a bit for us, particularly the American independent spirit and the sort of the way it has existed within this very Christian, rather tight-fisted, puritanical heritage? It must have been yeah, a relief yeah. for people to come across. Talk to us about that a little. Yeah, yeah. And I often talk about there being two kinds of Americans in in context of, of this uh, history. And you could see it right at the beginning when the first important guru came here, uh, Swami Vivekananda, in 1893. You see it in, in uh, the story I tell about his experience here and the few years he spent here. And it's still the same uh, story going on today. You have this one set of American uh, Christians who uh, are have this sort of exclusivist, triumphal vision of religion where their version of Christianity is uh, supreme and everything else is uh, primitive and heathen. And they reacted to uh, India and the teachers from India uh, with not only disdain and contempt, but uh, as if they were a threat, and um, denounced them. And, and this went on right from the beginning, and it's going on right now with uh, fundamentalists, you know, denouncing yoga classes and so forth. But the other American is this incredibly open-minded, rational, free-thinking, curious, pragmatic soul that if something sounds uh, attractive and uh, makes sense and turns out to uh, have some value, they'll embrace it and they'll be open-minded and so forth. And that's the other uh, side of the coin. And, and you could see that in the reaction uh, to Vivekananda in the 1890s when he became a, a superstar uh, and they had a lot of uh, attention from what was then the media, the newspapers and journals. So you had both going on. You had this enthusiastic response and people being open to his message and wanting to hear it. And, and, and to those free-thinking Americans from then and now, uh, the kind of freedom of um, spiritual freedom that the Vedic tradition represents – where they recognize that there are many paths to uh, spiritual development and, and uh, a direct c contact with the divine, and that all paths lead to the same ultimate goal if, if you take them deeply enough. That sort of freedom and openness and sense of pragmatism, that you, you find the path that's right for you. That's really very American, and it, it accounts for the reception that these teachings have had over the course of 200 years and why there's 
you know, 20 million people taking yoga classes and doctors telling people to meditate and and all the rest of the developments that I, I, I talk about in American Veda. It's, it's this open minded freedom, which is much more American than than the kind of fundamentalist strain. Right. That was that's why I liked the beginning part of the book, because you get, you know, it, the price of this book, whatever it is, is worth it's worth getting because of your descriptions of Vivekananda and how he got to Chicago and what, how difficult it was. And then when he spoke and then the resistance and then his response, because here you've got this revered yeah. you know, Indian. And once yeah. he'd heard that these fundamentals, you put it, were putting him down and saying, this is not equal. This is not, you know, we don't, we're not interested in this. Then his response was so fiery, you know, saying, you know, you guys. I know. I'm glad you mentioned that because people think of yogis as these, you know, passive, you know, figures who uh, are have equanimity all the time and so forth. But, you know, he was a passionate guy and he didn't he didn't stand for uh, being insulted and demeaned by by these people. And um he uh, told them uh, the truth of things and told them that while he was at it, he told them what they could do with their missionaries that they were sending to India. By the way, as David says, the price of this book is uh, you, get your, you get your money, folks. And speaking of that, you can go to Amazon.com and get Philip's book and help Indeed. support this podcast because we're an affiliate and you can also pro oh, good. can you go can is this available did you read this for audible the book do you know no i'm i'm going to do that i just it's it's a time consuming process yeah. so i haven't done it yet but i really want to and the best ones are where the author reads their own work we find and so please yeah if, if they're decent readers and and that's why i haven't done it yet because i i want to do it myself unless yes, you can exactly. get me james earl jones yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. well then everybody you'll it'll it'll be done hopefully what by the end of the year you may get to it i do hope so yeah okay good so but meanwhile you can go to our banner on amazon on the mindrollingpodcast.com and, and get the book through there and we get some benefit from that and it's very very precious to us otherwise we go down <laughs> so, uh, Philip, I'm going to uh, bring up something that's humorous. Okay, I got the book, right. and I got a I got a hard copy of the book, right? And it has a beautiful picture section in the middle where you have various of of yes. the beings that you're talking about, and w the picture you have with Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji. Uh, do you know that picture in the book? Do you remember that? There's it says yeah, sure. Maharaji with some that. with some disciples. And in so it there's just it's you're in that picture? I oh, am in the picture and not Krishna Das. <laughs> and I'm tired of people thinking it's Krishna Das. <laughs> Is that true? That's not really, really funny. All right, I, I'm he pulling and it I, up on my Yeah, pull it up. <laughs> it's Mahar what it is, what makes it even more wild for me that I pick this book up and look at this picture, aside from the fact the guy in the right-hand corner is uh, Krishnadas, which is not. Uh, the guy next to me is my father. And my father just... But wait a minute. I, I, I don't see... 
The only picture of uh, Nim Karoli there is the one with Ramdas. It's just the two of them. No. no. You have to. Are you are you looking at the wrong? You're a wrong book. Then you have a <laughs> doppelganger that's got another book out here, Philip. Hold on, maybe no. I was looking at the picture online. Maybe no. They probably picture. didn't put it. They didn't. Oh wait, went, no, no, no. You're right. You're right. You're oh. right. It's. Uh, I was looking at the. I don't have the picture of Ram Dass and uh, Neem Karoli in there. I have a different one. Yes, and that is the one so where... So now I have to look at it. Yes. I have to look at it. it so what I'm trying to say is my father, who is next to me, and my uh, my f- ex-wife, uh, and my brother, who's not in the frame. He was cut out, but he's in the frame. This is an incident where my entire... Uh, my family, not my entire family, my entire family has been with uh, Neem Karoli Baba, but this was an ah. incident where I was with my father and my brother and uh just we were just living uh at Dada Mukherjee's house who I don't know that you I don't think you mentioned him he was one of our mentors and an incredible being himself ah. and my ah. father just passed actually a few weeks ago in Santa Fe and he was like one of the oldest devotees of Ninkaroli Baba and uh so I really looked, yeah and I looked in this book at this picture I couldn't believe it Wow! Next edition, you can delete Krishna. Okay, everybody. So if you get the book and you and you look at uh, (laughs) the lower right hand corner of the book of the the picture, picture. yeah, yeah, I could see why people think it's uh, it's Krishna Das, but it's you. Yeah. Well, we all look like that. It's good to know. Uh, That's really good to know. So. Uh, no, that was a fun thing that happened. Let me tell you, I had no idea, no idea. Your hair is different. It is, yes. That's what happens, you know, 60s to 60s. <laughs> I tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about um, what are your impressions of, uh, I mean, obviously a, a lot, uh, you know, since the time that Vivekananda came over and others came over over the years, few and far between, all the way to Krishnamurti. Um, but we we were caught right in the middle. I mean, I was uh, I told this story about a billion times, and I'm going to get a demerit, because now we have a demerit system where yeah, either David and I say the same story uh, more than uh, three times. <laughs> yeah. um, I know what's coming, Philip. You don't, but you'll get it as soon as I he was, says it. I met Ram Das because I was in Montreal, a uh, uh, program director of a radio station. That's how I met him. And uh, then uh, went to his farm, you know, in New Hampshire, those event, the, those gatherings, and just like yeah, a number yeah. of us shook him up for the address, you know. And basically, I met him in India because he was going at the same time as I in 1970 when he went back. And so I was part of that whole thing that got sucked in by just, you know, you're, you're writing about, you know, what happened. The, the impact at that time obviously was huge way more than any other time previously what do you think of the right. elements that made up that e- enormous I and mean, david and i have talked about it on our podcast about the things that transformed us but what are, what what are the things that made that explode at that time in your mind the 60s you mean yeah that, yeah that the emergence well, we think of think of as the 60s <laughs> yeah you know, you're right. That was like it was a big watershed thing. And, and, you know, 
sociologists have written about the 60s. Whenever I give talks and I get to the 60s, I look, you know, there's always people our age who lived it. But there's also people who are too young to to know about it. And and I always say, well, whatever you heard about the 60s is true. Because there was so many things going on in the culture at that time. Um, What I generally think, and, and I'm not a sociologist, but all the strains, everything that was influencing uh, the baby boomer generation and, and even people who are pre-baby boomers like the beat poets and some of the some of our elders like Alan Watts and Allen Ginsberg and all those people. Mm. Um, there was this there was this deep search for truth. And for uh, finding out who we were what the what life is all about what we're doing here on the planet how do you live a, a fulfilled life how do you uh, car how do you uh, sustain um, a truly meaningful and deep relationship to the cosmos all these questions were burning in us and of course it was facilitated by drugs and by uh, the, the whole counterculture experience and in that, into that mix, all the teachings from the East showed up, you know, through a variety of sources from writers as diverse as, you know, Herman Hesse and Aldous Huxley and Alan Watts and, and autobiography of a yogi was being passed around to, to everybody and early translations of the Gita. And then um, people, the gurus started coming around. And it also was coming through music because Ravi Shankar became a superstar. And when he met George Harrison and then George went to India and, and, and all this stuff was turning us toward India and, and the ideas of, uh, from India and the practices from India because it sort of showed up as alternative answers to what we were getting from mainstream American culture. And it made sense to people. It turned us on. It, it, we all turned in that direction. And then when the Beatles went to India in 1968, and when they uh, earlier took up uh, TM and met Maharishi, who became known as the Beatles guru, and then they went to India, that was to me a, a huge watershed moment. And if you go back and look at the media attention that got, it was absolutely extraordinary. And that that was sort of the peak moment. And and after that, you know, everything India from meditation to hatha yoga to ashrams and gurus, everything just exploded. And when Ramdas came back from India and being with Neem Karoli, uh, then you had uh, this sort of new phenomenon of this very famous former Harvard professor, notorious for you know his association with with Tim Leary and LSD and everything, now being a, a teacher, a representative of these great teachings from ancient India, and it added a whole new. Um, uh, element to the the uh, the teachings from India because now you had this American guy who didn't have to he wasn't being treated in the same way that uh, the, the the gurus who became prominent had to be and it just further legitimized everything so it was this groundswell that 
culminated in all these phenomena in the late 60s, early 70s. Right. Exactly. Does that make any sense? It's exactly how we have thought of it. Exactly. All of the stressors, all of the things that we bumped into that helped transformation from psychedelics to books to mu- music, of course, was a huge thing. So, yes. Yeah. Do you find a parallel to what's going on uh, these days? I mean, we we have talked to, uh, in my other hat on uh, as a director of the foundation, Love, Serve, Remember Foundation, working with, uh, you know, all of this material of Ram Dass's and, you know, and trying to fulfill uh, the... Um, mission of of the foundation which is to make this stuff available to this generation 20s and 30s particularly um mm-hmm. as and and right now there is, has been these wars there has been you know uh, an economic debacle uh which has put huge stressors on society um there right. there is you know tremendous interest uh on the part of 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 people of this generation to uh, take a look at what's going on in the environment and try and do stuff. And, and there is social activism, as there was back then. There is, there's so many uh, parallels. And we, we get a lot of requests, especially since these podcasts have been uh, started. I mean, I do one with Ram Dass as well, where I introduce some of his key, just key talks that I find. And, and there's tremendous interest ah. over it. It's almost like... Uh, it's like when I was on the radio in the late, in 6970. Uh, and, uh, you know, I first heard him and put him on the air and the switchboard lit up. Who's that? I mean, w- people went crazy. So there, do you see parallels uh, from that time? To- yeah, there are parallels. Nothing, nothing will ever uh, repeat the 60s. The 60s is an unrepeatable phenomenon, just like the Roaring Twenties. Right. will never be duplicated right. but but the 60s had a lot in common with the 1920s and i think today there's a lot has a lot in common with the 60s there's a lot i mean there's no uh, draft so you know people aren't as uh agitated about about world conditions but but there's great concern not only about the economy but about the environment i'm really impressed by young people today Mm. uh, in their 20s and 30s. You know, they're not out in the streets like we were back then, but they're quietly very active and and socially engaged and uh, searching for their own meaning and purpose and uh, and truth. And and the other thing is all the teachings from the East are so much more accessible now. Yeah. Right. The I net. mean, you know, I remember trying to find a Gita, a copy of the Gita when I first heard about it. And I was living in New York and I had to go, you know, find my way to Weiser's bookstore, which, right. I, you know, it was really hard to find. Now you can, you know, all this stuff is so easily available. There's yoga everywhere. Yeah. There's kirtan everywhere. There's meditation everywhere. Uh, books available. Teachers available. And so they're naturally gravitating to to these uh, teachings in ways that uh, are a lot easier for people and a lot more normal than it was yeah. then. I mean, back then it was really sort of counterculture, uh, but now it's just mainstream. Yeah, That's I wanted true. to uh, take a little bypass here because um, things come in strange ways, and one of the things, one of the people you talk about that I'd certainly never heard of was a guy called Mickey Finn. 
and I'd like I, I'd <laughs> like you to I'd li- I do too, just from reading what you said about him, and I'd like you to talk about <laughs> Mickey Finn. Uh, well, one of the teachers I profile, uh, you know, uh, who had a big impact on America, there were several teach great holy men of India, and they were usually men, with the exception of uh, great uh, female saints like Ananda Moy Ma, um, who never came, never left India, never came to the West to teach, uh, but had a huge impact on the culture, Neem Karolis being one of them and uh, Swami Shivananda, Ramana Maharshi, and and another was Sri Aurobindo. So I wrote about Aurobindo and how, you know, through various means, uh, he attracted followers in the, in America. And one of them was a guy named Mickey Finn in Boston. And um, he was a con man and a thief who had served time. And, and you know, he was a real reprobate. And... Um, but he was a seeker and stumbled upon the teachings of Aurobindo and changed his life entirely and went to India and Aurobindo's ashram and came back and went straight, essentially, and drove a taxi in Boston and sort of turned his apartment wow. into the uh, Sri Aurobindo Study Group Center. And uh, I, when I heard the story, I thought, oh, that's an interesting thing. And wow, what a great name. What a classic Boston Irish character, you know, petty thief, con man, gone straight. Now he's a yogi. And this is like our parents' generation. And so uh, when I was in Boston researching the book, I interviewed his uh, widow, uh, Mary, I think her name was. And I, was, I went to their apartment and in the end, I, when I thanked her, I said, this, this was so great. I want to use it in the book because, you know, what a great character and uh, such a great Boston Irish character. And she said, oh, no, dear. His real name was Michael Finkelstein, <laughs> which is the sort of punchline to the Mickey Finn story that he was he, he was really, <laughs> you know, a Hindu like so many others. Oh, and uh, what is it about the Hindus, by the way? That's a. I don't know, the, but it's. Why did all so the Jews go wrong? over there? What? It's what, amazing. It is. I mean, I sat there. You, do you know that? Oh, this is really out of school. Uh, Maharaji never, ever said a word about Jews, ever. <laughs> okay. In fact, one time Ramdas, Maharaji was talking about the great saints, Siddhas, Buddha. And and you know Krishna and Ram, I mean you know and and even Mohammed he even said Mohammed and Jesus and yeah. Je- of course Jesus was probably the first thing he said. Then Ramdas right. went, yeah, and Moses and Maharaji <laughs> he looked the other way, never said a word, looked the other way, and we never heard a thing about it <laughs> ever. Really? No. Never. You know why? Be, Meanwhile, I mean, half the people around him were, were uh, New York Jews, probably. Yeah, well, all over Jews. <laughs> they were from all. I yeah, was from right. Montreal. Yeah, I was um, a, so, yeah. uh, no, but um, I think bec- he, uh, this is a digression to, to a degree, but when we got there, when we first met him, he talked a lot about Christ. I mean, he used to say Christ yeah. and Hanuman are the same, but. But he talked, I mean, when this is a famous story, and I'm not going to tell it, but when I asked him how to meditate, he said, meditate like Christ. When he was 
when he was crucified, he felt love, no pain. And then we rammed us. I, I heard that story. Yeah. I heard that story, and I never knew it was you who asked the question. Yeah, I know, because Christian and Ramdas like own it, you know, and they should pay me royalties on that song. <laughs> on that uh, song, yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, the truth is, from that, I mean, when he said those things, or he said to me, "Why, uh, why aren't you wearing your cross?" I'm thinking, like, I'm Jewish. What? And uh, you know, of course, I ran yeah. out and got one. I. You know, from non, he lived in the non-dual, and it, there was no yeah. separation, and Christ is Jewish. You know, from that, yeah. it must have been, because how could he not say a word, you know, that there is no, well, you know, of course. Maybe he just didn't, maybe he didn't understand the history or something. No, no, no. There's no understanding. You're not no. understanding with beings like this. No. No, he didn't I mean, just to annoy yeah. the Jews. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. just to make them he crazy. Might have done He's that. still talking about it. It's I mean, he might have been, years later. He might know? have had fun with us, you know, because <laughs> no, he had a lot of fun with us, that's for sure. Anyhow, that's that. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you know, on but that, the uh, phenomenon, sorry. the phenomenon of uh, the, per, the, the high percentage of people around almost all the gurus of the 60s, there was a high percentage of them who were Jews. I can't tell you how many American swamis I interviewed who turned out to, you know, to have been Jews when, you know, before they changed their name to something Ananda and a few scholars and really rabbis about it. So there's, there's actually a section in, in the next to last chapter, um, subtitle, the subsection is called Oiveda because and I had to, you know, address it. I had to ask the question. And there's a lot of theories about it because it's a very common observation. And the most, the most um, frequently heard explanation has to do with um, the sort of Jewish emphasis on education and freedom of inquiry. Uh, Philip, we were talking about the way America, America whatever, that includes the media, politicians, school, superintendents, the way they perceive the Eastern and particularly Indian uh, perspective, shall we say, now, as compared with yeah. even the 60s, when it, when it entered with a bang. Give us your evaluation of that now. Well, well the, the difficulty you brought up earlier about um, that's going on in, in California about the uh, teaching yoga in school, uh, I mean, that has echoes from the past as well, because back when uh, TM was so popular, uh, some school systems wanted uh, meditation to be uh, taught to their students. And there were objections on church-state grounds because people said, no, you can't do this. This is religion, and, you know, we can't pray in school, so you can't meditate. And and that side won in those cases because you you could make an argument that yogic teachings have some basis in religion, depending on how you define religion and how you define yoga and all that. What's happening in California sounds like the same thing, but in truth, it's coming from Christian fundamentalists who really have no problem with church and state when it's their church. They would really love to have <laughs> their their religion right. uh, propagated in, in the schools. 
And and in this case, it's not even meditation. It's it's just you know classic sort of hatha yoga stretches that they are teaching the kids, and um, and they've re- done you know they've removed any uh, Indian cultural elements or uh, religious elements from what I gather. But it, it raises a big question because you know it's it, you know we are a, a culture that honors separation of religion and public life. Um, but there's the backlash against yoga and meditation and Indian spiritual teachings, even outside of the public domain. There are preachers who are telling, you know, saying Christians shouldn't do yoga. Christians shouldn't do this meditation stuff. If you, if, because it's, it's, uh, Hinduism is stealth. It's stealth Hinduism. They're sneaking in into you and and they're pagans and and heathen and you'll go to the devil and if you empty your mind <laughs> it leaves room for the devil to come in and all this other stuff and you know it's it's inevitable there are people like that in the world and but there are fewer and fewer of them because there's also Christian yoga and Jewish yoga and people embracing this stuff in the context of their own religions, which is, you know, would make all the yoga teachers in the in history very happy. And uh, and they're, you know, on the ascendancy, if you look at the younger generation, you know, there's there's many more who are open minded and pluralistic and uh, uh, free of, of those sort of uh, fundamentalist restraints and and you know they'll but you know when people feel threatened they make a lot of noise yeah exactly exactly um philip out of all those 300 people you interviewed give us uh tell us a story um (laughs) <laughs> any one of them, or to anything of them that w- one would call unpredictable and unusual, oh, from what you boy, expected. Oh boy, that's interesting. Wow, hmm. I'd have to give some thought to that. Unpredictable moments. Uh, let, let me switch the question on you because I'm, I'm nothing comes to mind that was really shocking or surprising. I'm usually asked, "What were the most memorable?" interviews uh, uh you know and to be honest there were the two that stand out were when i interviewed houston smith uh in person and houston who as you know wrote the forward to my book and yes. is probably the most famous and important religious scholar of religion uh in our era yes. Uh, he was already 90 and very frail, and it was, you know, incredibly sweet and memorable to spend time with him and interview him. And I didn't get to interview Ramdas uh, in person because uh, I didn't have the budget to go to Maui, but I interviewed him by phone. And that was really memorable because it was so warm and uh, sweet. And there was, I'll, I'll tell you one anecdote from that since you're friends of Ramdas. At one point, uh, you know, he was telling me, you know, things that you already know. But at one point I said, you know, given the, the sort of story I'm telling here, how do you see your own role in, um, in that transmission? And he he paused for a minute, uh, and then he said, "I was like an uncle." 
I was like an uncle to the counterculture. And I thought, you know, and and there was just something so warm about that. And we just chatted a bit. But later I realized that was such a cool metaphor because to so many of us who were, you know, he was he was older than us, but not as old as our parents. So he was like our parents' younger brother who was hipper than the parents (laughs) and cooler than our parents who had great stories and great wisdom to impart, um, but was not a parent figure. Uh, And I thought that that was a really great analogy. And he had that sort of credibility um, of of the the really hip uncle that you can learn from uh, without being intimidated and also have a good time with. So that that was memorable. Um, if I think of anything else, I'll... <laughs> no, that's good. That's really yeah, no, nice. That's, yeah. that's lovely. Um, I, you know, have to say that uh, I was in the midst of all of this, and uh, although I have not read the entire book, um, I've, I've read uh, a good part, and being in the midst of all of this, there's so much information that you've gathered that really makes this whole... Um, the line of transmission so clear uh, and how that happened, and it is a really super historical document, aside from being fun to read. You, you, you've made it oh, interesting. Thank you so, much. so we really appreciate it, Philip. And, yeah, we do. And uh, we appreciate you being with us uh, on this podcast. And uh, again, people, do go to Amazon and pick the book up and... Uh, it's it's something great for you to have, and it's something also nice for you to support us with, as uh, we've said, we'll, uh, to go through mindrollingpodcast.com and go through the Amazon portal. So uh, what, what are you up to these days before we go? I've been doing a lot of traveling, giving talks uh, based on uh, the content in American Vader, different venues. Um, uh, you know that 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 come up. It's fascinating how how uh, different sort of groups, yoga groups, mm. Hindu groups, uh, churches uh, who want to hear my presentations. Uh, sometimes I've been doing uh, just just the Beatles transmission, which is a lot of fun. Oh, really? So I've been doing a lot of that and and other writing projects and blogging. You know to keep this alive, but also moving other projects forward that I I, oh, I can't uh, discuss yet. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, is there a place for people to find out if you're in their town, like uh, a Facebook yeah. friends oh, thing sure. or something? Yeah, my. I have two websites. Uh, my personal website is philipgoldberg.com, Philip with one L, and uh, the the book's website is americanveda.com. Oh, great. So people do go up there, and you might be able to catch Philip uh, in uh, one of his uh, talks. That would be great. Well, thanks again. Really appreciate you. And uh, that's uh, it's going to be a fine addition to uh, all of the wonderful people that we have uh, the great opportunity to speak with Philip. Thank you. Thank you, Philip.